Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our episode in a moment, but first, Paula and I appreciate all of the continued support out there. We have over a million downloads, and we want to keep growing. If you could leave a positive rating on our podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. Also, tell a friend or family member about our show. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. As the clock passed midnight into November the 23rd, 1963, a sad and weary country fell asleep, still reeling from the news. Just a few hours earlier, a man with a sniper rifle had put a bullet into the head of the leader of the free world. President John F. Kennedy was dead. But before the sun rose, 84 people in northern Ohio were facing a much bigger disaster. A fire was sweeping through the building where they lived, consuming residents still in their beds. 63 of them would not make it out alive. In the pre-dawn hours, editors throughout Ohio ripped up their front sheets, trying to squeeze in a few paragraphs of a tragedy that would no doubt have dominated national news on any other day. But on this day, it was a story that would have to remain below the fold. This is the story of the Golden Age nursing home fire. Huron County is about halfway between Cleveland and Toledo, and roughly 20 miles southeast of its county seat of Norwalk is Fitchville, one of those small, unincorporated communities that might have grown into a village or a city if the circumstances were right. Fitchville's one claim to fame was the Mansion Hotel, a building once reputed to have hosted Abraham Lincoln, as well as serving as a stop on the Underground Railroad, where slaves escaping the South could rest on their way to freedom in Canada. In 1963, there was one other thing that made the rural stretch along U.S. 250 a destination. Its population of a couple hundred people was supplemented 
by the 84 folks who lived at the Golden Age nursing home. Most of the residents at the home were elderly, a collection of grandparents and great-grandparents who couldn't live on their own anymore, at least one of them having celebrated a 100th birthday. But there were younger people, too. It was also a home for those suffering from mental illnesses or physical infirmities. The youngest resident was just 38 years old. And though there were several counties between Huron and Cuyahoga, about half of the residents used to live in Cleveland and its suburbs. The Golden Age Nursing Home was in a building that used to be a toy factory. It was one story and made of concrete block. Additions had changed its footprint into an L-shape. It had a flat wood roof covered by paper and tar. The first person to see the flames licking that roof that night was a truck driver passing by. It was just before 5 a.m. when Henry Dahman of Sarber, Pennsylvania, making his usual run through the rural stretch of U.S. 250, spotted sparks on the north end of the roof coming from arcing electric wires that had sagged through the pine trees in the front lawn. Dahman stopped his truck and ran inside. He found a member of the nursing home staff. There were only three people on duty, But in a tragic twist, the fire had already burned through the facility's telephone wires. They couldn't call for help. Dahman rushed off the property in search of a phone and reached the Huron County Sheriff's Dispatch at 5 a.m. Firefighters were on the scene within 10 minutes, but it was too late. Strong winds reaching 40 miles per hour had fanned the flames into an inferno. In that brief time between Dahman's discovery and the arrival of first responders, the fire had reached both ends of the building, fueled by the tar on the roof. They could only reach those who were already walking toward the exits. The intense heat made it impossible to rescue anyone deeper inside. And the act of breaking windows to pull a few from the other side to safety also allowed the wind to act as a blowtorch to the building's interior. The lawn was dotted with a handful of survivors, some moaning from the pain of burns, some simply from fright. Huron County Deputy David Bauer helped the first elderly woman he found into a car. Her skin peeled off in his hands. Two more passing truck drivers, Clifford French, a 21-year-old from Michigan who was also a seminary student, and John Minor from Sandusky, stopped and tried to help evacuate residents before firefighters had even arrived. John Minor later told investigators they only had a few minutes to do what could be done. He said, at first, there wasn't too much smoke or flame, but within 15 minutes, the place was filled with smoke. We had to stop helping them. 70-year-old Esther Plough reacted quickly when Miss Francis, the night supervisor, ran through the facility yelling fire and telling people to head for the back door. But Esther said when they reached the door, it was locked. 
and smoke blocked any chance at retreat. I got there and pulled and pulled, but it was locked, she told reporters later. I saw a man through the glass and I yelled at him, for God's sake, get us out of here. He left and I was frightened, but he came back and bashed in the door. Their rescuer was one of the truck drivers. 73-year-old Emma Schwinnen said she didn't even know how she got out. A man ran in shouting fire, she explained. He told me to get out the back way. I must have passed out in the hall. When I came to, I was on the grass. I seen flames flying out of the back, and people were screaming. 72-year-old Barbara Schmitz said she woke up surrounded by smoke, finding it hard to breathe. Unable to walk on her own, a nurse and a man grabbed her and dragged her down the hall, depositing her near the door, but turning and racing back in to try and rescue another. Mrs. Schmitz crawled the rest of the way out, through the door and into the grass. One of the younger survivors, 49-year-old Emmett Evedge, escaped death in the men's ward. He said the tar from the roof had melted and was dripping down into the wards, igniting everything it touched. Everett carried a fellow resident to safety after he discovered the man's wheelchair was too wide to fit through the door frame. It was a design flaw that had never been corrected in the building's conversion from toy factory to nursing home. The building's owner, Robert Pollock, later told reporters it appeared many residents died because instead of walking outside during the emergency, they turned and went back to their beds. In the end, the three employees on the site and 21 of the residents, just 21 of the residents, survived, though most of them suffered from burns and smoke inhalation. 63 people were killed. Earlier in the year, Cleveland State Hospital had transferred three dozen mentally ill patients classified as unable to benefit from additional treatment to Golden Age. Of those 37 patients, 36 died in the blaze. The intensity of the Holocaust caused the building's cement blocks to buckle and cave in. The building was gone, but for the entranceway, which was virtually untouched. The wind at the front of the building had carried the flames to the back, sparing the front door with the name Golden Age Nursing Home rising above the smolding embers. A temporary morgue was set up in the Fitchville High School gymnasium, but removing and identifying the bodies was a sad, slow, and gruesome chore. The only way they were going to be able to identify some people was by determining where they spent their last moments. Those not revealed through their teeth or dentures were given names based on which beds they were found in. 22 of the 63 victims went unclaimed by their families. The Huron County Coroner distributed their remains among area funeral homes for burial preparation. A small state fund for burial emergencies could only afford them a wooden box. They were buried side by side in a trench about 60 feet long 
inside Fitchville Cemetery. On a cold day beneath gray skies, about a week after the fire, a hundred mourners came out to pay their respects, along with a contingent of highway patrol officers. A Catholic priest and a Lutheran minister shared the duties of graveside service. Among the unclaimed was a single veteran. He was given a traditional military send-off with members of the National Guard and the local VFW and American Legion standing at attention and firing rifle volleys near his flag-draped coffin, which was buried separately. Meanwhile, the investigation was well underway. While the building was still smoldering the morning of the fire, Ohio Governor James Rhodes and State Fire Marshal Fred Rice took a plane from Columbus to view the scene. Rhodes walked about the property, reporters who followed him noting that he could see an occasional charred skull or piece of human flesh. Rhodes told them, I have never seen a sight more devastating to the human eye than this. I don't know any words that can express it. At the end of the visit, Rhodes departed to fly to Washington, D.C. to pay his respects to the dead president. But he left Rice behind, promising whatever state resources were available to help the highway patrol, which was tasked as the lead investigating agency. Over the next month, 3,300 man-hours were devoted to figuring out what happened and what might have prevented it. More than 100 interviews were conducted, including with E.H. Woods, the head of the Cleveland Business Group who built the structure 10 years earlier. Woods was stunned at the fire's power. That home was supposed to be fireproof, he told reporters. I can't understand how it happened. Everything was concrete block. The new year began on January the 1st, 1964, and that day, newspapers carried the final report of the investigation. The fault, in a word, was carelessness. Both present and former owners had permitted electrical alterations that were contrary to code requirements. Even though a fire marshal inspector reported no issues in a visit just a few months before the fire, employees acknowledged there had been warnings in the form of burned-out switches, a smoking fuse box, and blown fuses. The flames that night began as a series of ignitions in the attic and within the walls. The fire was made more devastating because there was no documented evacuation plan, no drills that would train aides and the residents in how to evacuate. And though it hadn't been required at the time, the building had no sprinkler system, no manual fire alarm, and just three portable fire extinguishers. It was also reported that some victims had been restrained in their beds, and the fact that wheelchairs could not pass through every door frame, and that there was no emergency bar that allowed residents to leave through that locked back door, well, those were additional problems. 
the Golden Age Nursing Home Fire was actually just one of a series of nursing home fires in the 1960s that finally woke people up to the flaws in the system. By the end of the decade, new federal laws were in place with stricter safety codes, required sprinkler systems, and demands for evacuation plans and regular drills. According to a study done just a decade ago, the average number of nursing home deaths caused by fire fell from a peak of 15 a year in the 1960s to two a year by 2013. The Golden Age nursing home tragedy might have been overshadowed by Kennedy's assassination, but its effects were without a doubt far-reaching. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.